I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health. Today I'm hosting this podcast to discuss a difficult topic, provided drug diversion. What exactly is provided drug diversion? The issue centers on healthcare providers who divert injectable drugs away from their legitimate use as medications for patients and instead self-inject the drug to get a high. To cover their tracks, they sometimes substitute saline, water, or other liquids in the syringe. Then they place the used syringe back on the cart for use in patients. Returning the used syringe not only denies patients the pain medications they need, but the tainted needle and syringe could also expose them to bloodborne pathogens like hepatitis B virus, hepatitis C virus, and HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. This is disturbing and distressing. Today we are joined by one of the leading voices in the country on drug diversion prevention, Kimberly New, who is both an attorney and a registered nurse. Kimberly is a controlled substance security consultant to healthcare facilities across the country. She has extensive experience assisting facilities with starting and refining the drug diversion detection program. Kim is past president of the Tennessee chapter of the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators. She is a frequent author and speaker on the subject of provider drug diversion. Uh, Kim, I was uh, shocked by a comment you made in the past. You had said that in your former job at the University of Tennessee Medical Center, when you initially started the program, you found that three to four providers were diverting each month. Uh, that seems like a lot. And after the program was well established, you were still finding one or two providers each month, either taking pills or using injectables every month. And that also seems like a lot. Well, most facilities have some processes in place to detect diversion, but they don't recognize that it happens in facilities across the U.S. where controlled substances are found, and they really is no way to stop it entirely. So shortly after I started working at my former job, we had a diversion case that I started investigating. It became apparent that we had good processes in place in some areas to address diversion, but our program certainly did need a lot of work. So once I began the formal program with regular auditing and surveillance for diversion, I started catching three to four nurses per month. That's three to four per month out of a staff of around 1,000 nurses. Although a lot of people think that diverting healthcare personnel start with pills and only a small number use injectables, I found that well over 50% of the people I was catching were diverting injectables and starting with injectables. So even when word got out that we had a robust program, I was still catching one to two nurses per month, but I was able to catch them much more quickly. In fact, in one case, I caught a nurse three days after the diversion started happening. So that's, that's critically important because if you catch them early on, potentially you'll be able to change, uh, change habits, uh, stop them uh, clearly. And I think this is something which is really important to be sure that we, uh, we identify problems um, quickly. Absolutely. It also protects patients from potential harm. Right, exactly. I think that's an, another key point. Even if it's three or four nurses and you have a thousand, imagine how many patients they have uh, they have um, uh, interacted with in the course of, let's say, a month or two. Absolutely. Uh, and obviously the impact it has on their life and life of their families. How widespread do you think the problem is? Well, that's a good question. It is universal among institutions. There's no question about that. Many institutions, however, don't have adequate processes in place to detect it, and once they do detect it, they're not inclined to report it because of concerns about civil and regulatory liability and negative publicity. 
Because it's underdetected and underreported, we really don't have um, reliable data on how common it is. Some will say maybe one in 10 nurses, but that's just a guess. When looking at the frequency of diversion, though, we do need to look at the fact that although we catch a lot of nurses, all types of personnel are involved. More nurses are caught because they're the number one patient care profession that has regular access to controlled medications. Because we don't know how common this issue is, what I tell facilities is if they're not detecting diversion, they certainly need to take a closer look. I, I uh, agree with what you're saying about the nurses, and as an anesthesiologist, I'm familiar with this as well, because what what often happens is that when a nurse or an anesthesiologist is doing patient care, they really do understand the amount of medication to get uh, to give in order to get an effect, and um, and we we're very concerned about that in anesthesiology. A couple of years ago, there was a high-profile case in New Hampshire, and that involved a radiology technician who practiced in eight states, including New York right here. Uh, he was ultimately sentenced to over 30 years in prison uh, for tampering with a consumer product and obtaining a controlled substance by fraud. Uh, yet many practitioners who divert aren't brought to justice. They just simply change their jobs and move somewhere else. So how did the New Hampshire episode raise the awareness about this problem? Well, the New Hampshire case demonstrated how much harm can be done by one diverting healthcare worker. As you mentioned, patients across the country were harmed and facilities were impacted as well. In that case, patients likely received care delivered by an impaired provider, but they were clearly harmed by being denied pain medication and by exposure to hepatitis C. This caught the attention of public health law enforcement, regulatory agency, and healthcare facilities because it was so egregious. It became clear that this was a widely underestimated patient safety risk. Prior to that case, the focus was typically on the diverter, and these cases were treated as isolated by institutions. But now public health officials, law enforcement, regulatory agencies, and healthcare facilities have begun working together toward the common goal of preventing, detecting, and properly responding to diversion. So to answer your question, if there's any silver lining that came out of the New Hampshire case, it is increased awareness and increased diligence. So you just mentioned the, the word prevention, and in a lot of ways, this is all about prevention. So the key thing is to pick up the warning signs ahead of time. So what do you think a healthcare provider... Uh, could do, what should they be looking for so that they could prevent um, uh, an individual, a nurse, a, a doctor, or anyone in the health profession for that matter, uh, from diverting? Well, oftentimes preventing diversion isn't as easy as maybe early detection. And some of the, the, some of the signs that we see in individuals who are diverting include volunteering for overtime, coming to work when not scheduled to be there, coming to work early and staying late. They may make frequent trips to the staff bathroom because that's the best place to tamper with medications and inject. They may repeatedly check the controlled substance inventory because that allows a diverter to swap out tampered with syringes for unaltered syringes. They may choose submissive or less experienced staff to waste narcotics with because they're less likely to insist on complying with proper procedure. And they may delay waste so that they can inject the waste and replace it with water. It's important for individuals who work in healthcare facilities to know that individuals that divert are oftentimes high achievers and that they don't fit the stereotype of someone who is dealing and abusing drugs. So I think that you bring up a, another key point here regarding the fact that syringes can be swapped. And, and sometimes doctors uh, label things with one name and, and uh, it could be a variant of the type of narcotic uh, that is um, uh, less potent 
the name on the, the name on the syringe could be less potent than the name on the, the the drug actually in the syringe, and they subject themselves to a great risk if if they start to switch out syringes. Obviously, in general, there's yeah. a risk, but there is always the risk that they will um, overdose themselves. Uh, many in the health uh, care uh, profession think that provider drug diversion is an issue for law enforcement. And you touched upon this a little bit, uh, and that it's not a health care administration. But as a, as a lawyer and as a, a nurse, and I'm a, a lawyer and a doctor, um, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, what do you think about that regarding law enforcement versus healthcare administration? Well, I think they both need to be involved, and there are certainly different differing opinions on who should ultimately be involved. But it's important to keep in mind that diversion of controlled medications is a felony, so law enforcement clearly has a role. Healthcare facilities need to reach out proactively to external authorities and develop good working relationships with them, preferably prior to having an issue. That's essential to addressing the issue effectively. And it's also important to know that patient harm can be reduced by involving law enforcement because an arrest and criminal disposition may be apparent to the subsequent employer much sooner than a protracted professional board investigation. Even when law enforcement is involved, there are drug courts and other programs that support recovery and can expunge criminal convictions once the program is successfully completed. So those programs encourage recovery. And who needs to come to the table to fight injectable drug diversion? Uh, from the hospital perspective, we have risk management, we have pharmacies, we have administration, we have our colleagues as well. Uh, who should be there? Well, in the hospital, the key players would be nursing, pharmacy, compliance, security, risk management, human resources, occupational health, and then a relatively new development is including infection prevention. I think it's important to include infection prevention because they need to be equipped to fully assess and fully respond to cases in which patients develop infection. In the past, infection prevention has been kept out of this entire process, but I think it's an important thing to include them at this point. So with regards to that, do you think that uh the practitioners who have found diverting injectable drugs, uh, should they be tested for bloodborne pathogens like HIV, uh, hepatitis? I absolutely do think that they should be tested. Now, of course, um, compelling testing is not generally feasible. Um, and it's been extremely rare that anyone tested for bloodborne pathogens, but it is becoming more common after the New Hampshire case. Uh, at UT Medical Center, I developed a process where suspected diverters were asked to consent to bloodborne pathogen testing, and we did that at the time of the drug screen. It was treated as voluntary, and if the individual decided they didn't want to do it, that was fine. They weren't punished or treated differently. We ensured that the testing process and the result were handled in a confidential manner because we treated it like an occupational exposure. So we did it under that protocol. Nearly every suspected diverter that I had agreed to testing. Um, so now some institutions that I work with do undertake bloodborne pathogen testing as a part of each diversion investigation. Again, it's not overly common, but I think that um, more and more facilities are considering doing this and they understand uh, the value of doing so. Uh, I want to jump back for a second to what we were speaking about regarding hospital roles. What administrative controls do you feel could be put in place by the hospitals, by the pharmacies, to make sure that diversion is much harder and is easier uh, to detect? 
Well, there are several things hospitals can do, but some of the key things, um, number one, would be transparency. Historically, these cases have been kept under wraps. Um, staff within the facility never knew that diversion happened. But if you expect staff to know that the issue is real, to appreciate that, and, and to invest in the program, they have to know that it's happening at their institution. So transparency is essential. There needs to be ongoing education for all staff. They need to understand what the risks are to patients and their colleagues. They need to know signs of diversion and they need to understand reporting expectations and avenues. There needs to be regular auditing of drug cabinet transactions, appropriate security within the institution, physical security, and regular physical rounding within the institution to ensure that the policies that the institutions have in place are being complied with and to identify areas of risk. I, I think your point here, uh brings up an issue regarding colleagues. So it's hard sometimes for someone to have to report on someone that may be a colleague they've worked, on, worked with for years, and now I suspect that they are uh, um, involved in drug diversion. Uh, I think we should try to figure out ways to tackle that. So I was wondering, are there anonymous hotlines or mechanisms to make that easier so uh, people don't end up having to work with someone for even a short period of time while uh, the investigation is going on? Sure, there are anonymous hotlines, and certainly all staff have a duty to, to their patients, to their colleagues, and to the institution to report. As you mentioned, some may be reluctant because they don't want to get a colleague in trouble, but they need to be educated about the fact that failing to report is not a compassionate approach. It's not uncommon for diverters to overdose and die. Um, they may crash a car while driving impaired, or they may even commit suicide. Fortunately, as I mentioned, many institutions do have anonymous hotlines, and it's important for those institutions to know that if a hotline is used, it has to be monitored around the clock. Because of the patient safety risks involved, the last thing we would want is for a case to be reported Friday evening and not be discovered until Monday morning when someone took a mess off a machine. I think anonymous reporting is extremely valuable. I think all institutions need to have it in place. Has anyone ever looked at uh, someone who's involved with drug diversion, who's also involved with uh, sales of, of drugs, involved with uh, um, you know, uh, alcohol, and, uh, you know, other, other risky behaviors? Yes, there absolutely are. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we find that many of the individuals we catch diverting are using alcohol and have experimented with illicit substances as well. Um, on, the, on the topic of selling, though, most healthcare personnel who are direct care providers who divert at healthcare facilities are not diverting to sell the drugs. Um, they're diverting for personal use. They are very secretive about what's going on. They oftentimes haven't even been honest with themselves fully about what's going on. Um, so they're typically not out on the street selling the drugs. There are exceptions. Certainly, we see more pharmacists involved in the sale of drugs that have been diverted um, than we do, for instance, nurses or physicians. When we look at healthcare personnel who are diverting drugs, we're typically looking at individuals who are not selling them on the street. In New York, we have a strong Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement. I'm curious as to what you think maybe uh, governments should be doing in addition to what we already are doing. Uh, to address this issue? Well, I think one, one excellent state to look at is the state of New Hampshire. After the New Hampshire incident occurred, the state of New Hampshire undertook several different measures to ensure that 
controls were put in place to screen healthcare personnel um, to ensure that that hospitals had proper processes in place. And so I think that looking to them is is would certainly be valuable to any state. In addition, I think you, you know the state of Maryland has some immunity provisions relating to employment references. I know in my own experience in working with institutions across the country, typically the references that are given are strictly dates of employment and nothing further, even if the individual has been terminated for diversion or some other serious event. So I think increased immunity for employers to report is also um, something that is is really desperately needed. And finally, I think that diversion cases should have a central reporting location where um, where cases can be reported with some protections afforded for individuals who are reported, but also for facilities who are reporting, like the National Practitioner Data Bank. Thank you. One last question. Is there data that tells us what percentage of individuals who were involved in drug diversion returned back to their job that they had before? There are figures in various states, um, but of course those, those, that data only encompasses individuals who who go through a recovery program, oftentimes a formal recovery program. Um, I think that there are concerns in every institution about recidivism, and certainly any institution who has hired a, a prior diverter back has experienced at least one individual who has gone back to um, diversion. I know there is data in, in, in the anesthesia field about recidivism and about how tremendously um, significant that can be because many of those individuals die. I think that um, individuals who are involved in diversion certainly need need a chance to recover and a chance to return to safe practice. But it's important once they're back in a practice environment that they be supported and that, um, that they be monitored very closely. Well, I will say that my orientation period when I started my anesthesiology residency, and this was a while back, one of the initial presentations we had was about this issue. It was something which was profiled pretty quickly when we were starting to learn our specialty. Our thanks to Kimberly New for what has been a very enlightening conversation. This is Dr. Howard Zucker, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health. Thanks for listening to this podcast.